My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Aaron McIntyre. Uh, he is a YouTuber, um, a breakout Twitter celebrity, um, a guaranteed Field Bucks recipient, um, a crypto leftist, possible Fed, maybe. I don't know. Have you been Have you been involved in that in that part of the, of, of late late term drama? Um, and someone that I'm very happy to have on the show. Hey, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I remember the first time I uh, interacted with your content. It was uh, during a, a Dave the Distributist binge on YouTube, um, and you were either part of a stream or you were uh, you were in the recommended. So you, you kind of have this uh, related content. So I think it was a, a video about the cathedral that I saw first, and that was about I don't know a year or so ago. So I feel like I was kind of on the on the Aaron McIntyre train before it was cool. Um, how, how long have you been YouTubing? Uh, not very long. It's, I think it's been about a year and a half now. Uh, I, I've been, you know, kind of watching, you know, the distributors content and other, or the people for years. Uh, but I hadn't, I don't think I had started making anything. I think the channel is about a year and a half old now or so. Yeah. Maybe a little older than that. Nice. Wow. And it seems like your, your Twitter, um, profile grown a bit faster than your, your YouTube channel even. How how has that happened? Yeah, that, that was very weird. It was definitely a situation where I I had just started doing the YouTube thing and and heard Twitter was a good place to put you know your your stuff out so people could find it. So that's the only reason I had a, a Twitter account was to shill my YouTube channel. And then you know it just it, yeah I didn't have a lot of followers at first, but just after picking up a few here and there. And then I got some retweets from some bigger accounts. And, uh, you know, before I knew it, I had more Twitter followers than YouTube subscribers. And now it's way out of control comparatively. Um, so, and, and I think you certainly help with that. You, you were recommending some of my stuff, uh, earlier when I still had a, a smaller account. So that certainly helped. So I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, my pleasure. I, I I often say that you know the the guest that I'm interviewing is one of my favorite uh, posters on Twitter. In in this case, it, you know, you're very very high up there. I, I really love the the way you post. Like, I feel like if I was, I don't know, if if I posted a bit better, I'd probably post more. <laughs> I think I agree with you on on a lot of stuff. So I, I rarely do I see a post of yours that I'm like, yeah, you know, this is a a, a miss. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like. We're kind of on on the same wavelength with with a lot of things, so um, yeah, that's why you know it's uh, it's music to my ears. <laughs> whatever you put out, no, I appreciate it. Like I said, I, it's not something I expected at all. It, it was a big surprise, um, but you know, more than happy to have it. Of course, it, you know, it, it certainly makes uh, it certainly makes getting YouTube uh, <laughs> videos out easier. So, not sad about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I kind of had a, a similar trajectory because I was doing my 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 writing and my blog posts, and um, and then I was like, oh, you know, apparently you should post these on Twitter. <laughs> so I went to Twitter. Yeah, but, but it was around this time last year, and then yeah, things you know kind of took off, and then I you know I've got the idea that maybe a podcast would be a good idea. So yeah, Twitter is uh, definitely a, a catalyst for these things. Um, I I. I think I think it's really interesting to kind of um, focus first on on our backgrounds because, like I said, we, we've kind of we've kind of come to a point where our worldviews uh, are, are similar, but we've come from fairly different backgrounds. So, um, like I've mentioned on this podcast before, my background was kind of the um, pretty much like a, a Reddit atheist without necessarily being on Reddit. I was on different forums and, you know, making, making, you know, cringy memes and, and all that type of stuff. And then rationalism, you know, effective altruism, things like that. Um, and then like slowly, you know, comparing the, the, um, the worldview that was presented by these corners with what I was seeing in reality and stumbling upon Nick Land and then Moldbug uh, I kind of, you know, um, got red pilled, uh, and, and I, I, I kind of drifted outside of these spheres. Um, and I think your background is, is a bit different; it's a bit more normy, conservative. So, how how did you come to um, to the realization that things are not as they seem? Yeah, no, like you said, I definitely started off in a more normal American GOP conservative situation. Uh, yeah, I worked in in kind of Republican politics a little bit, and then I ended up being a, a reporter, a political reporter for kind of a local newspaper. And so it, it had always been something I was really interested in. But as I got more involved kind of on the ground and then, you know, looking at things through the journalist's lens, I started realizing that politics didn't actually work in the way that I've been taught in school or even that I, you know, I had espoused previously. And so as I kind of looked for alternatives, I ran into guys like the distributists, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, Moldbug and Land and those people. And so I, I kind of slowly came to the same realization, like from, from a different direction, but realizing that so much of the, uh, you know, kind of the mainstream GOP understanding of politics is is just controlled opposition, doesn't have a hope of making a difference, uh, and and needing to find something that explained why that was the case and why the things that were being described as you know you know you look at the New York Times or something like that and you know every you know middling GOP congressman is a threat to democracy and the end of America as we know it. How could these people? actually be just completely controlled and make no threat to the system if they're being described as, you know, huge threats to the system every day by the world's biggest news outlets. And, you know, the, the more you interact with these people and the more you interact with uh, politics uh, and kind of inside baseball, the more you, you see that's a problem and go looking for other options. Um, one of the the places where where people uh, land first when they when they um, have have a shock with you know with the reality of, of the the thing we call wokeness um, where where the um, 
Um, their lying eyes are, are not compatible with the things they see in, in places like the New York Times or, or through, through mainstream media or hear from their friends or, you know, uh, get uh, get harassed by at, at work um, is, is the so-called IDW, um, the intellectual dark web. Or, um, I don't know, what should this be called? The kind of classical liberal wing um, of, uh, and I, I've, I've kind of hung out in those places as well. I mean, I'm, you know, that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of the first port of call if you're interested in this. You know, Jordan Peterson's kind of tangentially part of that as well. Um, I what you're in is not the IDW. So the the intellectual sphere that you're part of, and I probably consider myself part of as well, is not the IDW. I mean, what is wrong with the IDW from your perspective? Well, it's it's just more liberalism is the is the problem. It's just uh, it, they just want liberalism to kind of wind back to the '90s. And that's the problem with a lot of, I think, opposition to wokeness is whether it's the IDW or the or, you know, more mainstream conservatism, it's still fundamentally taking on those values. It's just asking for earlier versions of it. It's just thinking that, uh, you know, if we can just peel back some of the, the newest updates, then then it'll be fine. Uh, but really, when you start looking at you know what the IDW has to offer, it really doesn't have a critique of wokeness other than you know basically it just it just got a little too puritanical. It went a little too far. It doesn't have any problem with the underlying assumptions, and you can see this pretty much always when it when it comes down to actual opposition because the IDW will almost always end up siding safely with progressives. You know, you see this with people like Sam Harris, you know, no matter how dangerous they say he is, no matter how, you know, radical or, you know, how, uh, you know, Islamophobic or whatever they'll call him, at the end of the day, he's still on their side and he's going to come down and land safely within the Overton window uh, because fundamentally he still holds their values. He simply isn't willing to go along with, you know, like I said, the, the latest updates. Yeah. So essentially, the the problem is um, with liberalism. Um, I, I I wonder if the because um, what I've seen happen in, in the IDW in the last I don't know maybe two or three years and why I've kind of drifted away. You know, one it was the, the lack of answers, like you said before, it didn't really make sense to me. Two, it was the um, you know I feel like they they don't really understand power. They don't understand. Um, concepts like, you know, what is truth? What is the individual? You know, they, they tend to call anything that's, you know, outside of like, I don't know, like a, a, a positivist lens. So they call it postmodernist. And I feel like all, all of these definitions are a little bit jumbled. Uh, I understand that there has to be kind of, you know, a friend enemy distinction and they've drawn the line between, uh, you know, realism or, you know, positivism and postmodernism. Everything outside of our circle is postmodernism. Uh, I've been called postmodernist for, for some reason. Um, and uh, I don't know, it's, I feel like because they can't really fight uh, the core of liberalism, they tend to end up fighting these, um, these kind of def definitional battles like, okay, so what is CRT? Oh, it, it's, you know, something that comes, flows out of the, the Frankfurt school. And then we talk about people in the Frankfurt school and what were they wearing and did they like their baguettes and, oh, but they were, they were Jewish and Nazis and all this type of stuff. There's, you know, flow, the, the number of articles and, and content flowing out of that is, is infinite, but it doesn't really address 
the core problem. Uh, so I don't know. I, I'm curious what you think about that. Do you think that's it's causal? Because to me, it feels like it's just a one big mill about talking about, I don't know, neo-Marxist whatever. Um, yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, they're still approaching, like you said, that, approaching this as if it's a the the only problem is just uh, the marketplace of ideas and if you can just properly you know parse the definitions if you can get everyone to agree rationally then we can all just move forward as we're supposed to uh, i think that's entirely missing the point i think that they they continue to live in this space like i said where you can just kind of go back to whatever their ideal 90s or you know 80s or or 60s whatever that time was when they thought that everyone was being objective and science ruled and rationality was king and once you can get people to properly define their movements and understand that then you, everything works itself out because at the end of the day you know rationality is the ordering principle and it's not And they don't understand that. And because they don't understand that, they get stuck in these debates over terminology that in the end of the day is not going to make the difference. And they just don't understand why. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. And I feel like um, there is just this entire sphere of, of thought that is um, that is completely ignored. And I think it's, you know, it's, To me, it feels a bit like gatekeeping. It's like no, no friends to right type of approach, where any sort of questioning of this rationalist principle of you know positivism is branded as postmodernism, um, because we will not even you know venture uh, into the critique of liberalism from the right, which there is a, a whole lot of you know a lot of it you explore on your channel, um, you know. Anything from from Burnham to Machiavelli, you know, Mosca, all, all sorts of thinkers, uh, Spengler. There is a, a lot of thought that has this flown into into this part of the of the critique, but um, this is not even postmodernism; it's fascism, and we <laughs> we're not going to open open that box. So um, I I don't know. I feel like it's it's not. I mean, once once you open the box, there's nothing you know. I, I, I mean, some, some of it, if, if you go into some corners, they would probably describe themselves directly as fascist. But um, it's essentially a very, um, a very useful lens to take on. I feel like a lot of people are missing out by not uh, by not seeing reality like that. It, it offers much more explanatory power than whatever, uh, you know, up, 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 what is it? Um, equality of, uh, of opportunity type dialogue. Right. And, and, and yeah. And. Yeah, I, I think the fact that pretty much post-World War II, th there's only three lenses through which anything in the world can be viewed is is causing a lot of the problems, right? Everything's either communism, liberalism, or fascism. There's nothing else. There's nothing, no doctrines, no understandings, uh, no political theory, no philosophy uh, that existed pre-1945 can actually be understood as anything but an extension of one of those three ideologies. Uh, and I think that's really dangerous because you then then you end up, like you said, I mean, obviously, uh, liberalism, is, liberalism is the preferred one. Uh, communism is the accepted opposition. And, you know, obviously the word fascist basically just, you know, lights everything on fire. It makes it impossible to talk about, which is, you know, not an accident. Uh, but there are plenty of, like you said, uh, right-wing uh, critiques of liberalism coming from guys like 
Thomas Carlyle, who many people have described as a socialist, you know, or guys like Joseph de Maistre. Uh, and so there's there's plenty of critiques of liberalism well outside any of those, you know, e- those other two options that are presented uh, currently today. And I think it's incredibly important to take those on because, um, you know, I, I, obviously, the like I said, the, the current IDW formation is failing, and it's pretty obviously failing to oppose uh, wokeness and kind of the the limp wristed version of the right that we see today that leads, especially the American you know GOP, simply does not have answers. All of their answers are either to basically just adopt what liberalism was twenty or thirty years ago, or to uh, you know just just talk about individual rights ad nauseum. And the the reason that you kind of saw someone like Jordan Peterson, even though Jordan Peterson uh, is still very squarely in the classical liberal camp, the reason I think you saw a lot of interest in Jordan Peterson is he was talking a lot less about rights and a lot more about responsibilities, a lot more about taking on the challenges that grow, bettering yourself, bettering your community. And, and while there are many people who still have problems with what he says, and I understand that, the, the the fact that he was willing to talk about and use that kind of language, I think, is what created so much more energy around him than any other member of that movement, because he was the only one offering anything that really was different and meant something to people and could make positive changes in lives, even if it was only the very tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I feel like um, there's... Um you know the, the the difference between him and and most of the other people is that um, he was talking about limits in a way. He was the first person who would you know take a, his little flag and and take a claim over moral ground, which no one wants to do nowadays. It's just you know it's everything you know it's we're um, kind of socially libertarian uh, and that's kind of what you should be. You know, socially liberal, fiscally conservative is the is the rallying cry of so called classical liberal. Um, and the, I, I don't know, it's, um, I feel like that, that was really inspirational to me. I really liked Jordan Peterson when he came out. I think now I probably don't follow him as much, um, one, because he fell off the map and, and two, because I feel like, you know, he, he kind of, he hits, you know, that limit of, um, he, he, in a way, what, what was interesting about Jordan Peterson was his own personal philosophy, even his like kind of, you know, crypto Christianism, uh, Christianity that he was presenting. Um, it was more about his personality rather than his perspective on political theory, which I think is not necessarily very mature, but it was, um, there was something in him, you know, his, the fact that he wrestled with, you know, the, um, the atomic bomb and, um, with the concept of evil, um, he had, you know, the, the idea of, um, kind of effective truth rather than, you know, extreme rationalism, which I think he's, he's still a bit murky about because he wouldn't necessarily be a classical liberalism if he actually took, uh, if he actually took that idea to its logical conclusion. So I think it was more about, the person, you know, he was a, a prophet type and that's what people gravitated towards. Yeah. I think Peterson took kind of the rational D uh, uh, you know, t- took the rational uh, I'm trying to say de deified and that's not how you say that, but t- took, yeah, he took the rationalized version of the Christian ethos as far as, you could take it. He 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 went as far as you can go with that. 
And you can almost see that, that, and that has a lot of appeal to people who have been trained that this is the only way to investigate truth. You know, being able to lay things out the way that he did and show eternal truths in, in a way that people are more willing to accept in the modern era is valuable, but you can certainly see where he hits those walls, right? And the walls are always in his inability to leave his own tradition of kind of classical liberalism and take the next natural step in things like faith and in, in things like, you know, embracing a metaphysic outside of what he's come, you know, his original comfort zone, like almost all of his limits come from his inability to move beyond that classical liberalism into the next, you know, lo- the next step of, you know, the ideas that he's exploring. Mm-hmm. So to, to, to go back to kind of a, a previous step, I mean, in your perspective, just, just as short as possible, if, if you, if you can summarize it, what is, what is wrong with liberalism? Why isn't this the end of history as, as promised? Why can't we make this work? Why can't we go to, you know, the so-called Fresh Prince uh, <laughs> version yes. of liberalism? Yes, as academic agent says, going back to Fresh Prince. Yeah, no, going back to the 90s. It's the, uh, th- there's a lot of problems. The, the main thing is that liberalism was a mechanism for obfuscating uh, kind of the friend-enemy distinction. Uh, there, you have groups and you have groups that disagree about uh, the ultimate good. And, dis- and in groups disagreeing about the ultimate good usually threaten kind of the existence of the other group. And these group things have manifested themselves in pretty violent ways. And so it's pretty understandable that people were looking for a system to kind of universalize ethical behavior. And liberalism kind of made this promise. It said, look, guys, we're going to take away the big questions. We're going to take away the big questions of who's actually, you know, God or what's actually reigning over the universe and and the, what the absolute moral law is. And we're going to basically like reduce morality down to its minimum components that is going to allow us to all function together. And for a little while, that magic worked, right? Like you, 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 it enabled a lot of economic growth. It allowed markets, you know, to, to flourish because people could no, no longer had to worry so much about what the other person believed. There were certain things, certain topics that were just kind of, you know, off the table. And we all just kind of operated in a minimum amount of morality to kind of make this whole thing function. The problem is that like the whole time, there is no actual like neutral marketplace. There is no neutral system we can put in place to govern. The whole time when we were doing this, there are still people running this whole thing. And those people have belief systems. And so slowly and surely, the belief systems that were allowed to operate inside the market outcompeted those that had been banned from the market. So, you know, uh, separation of church and state is a famous phrase that people banty about for, for America, even though it's not in the Constitution. But it, it's it's something that people have hardwired into them is that we have to have the separation of church and state. And so the fact that, you know, uh, th- that uh, explicitly uh, religious ideas were moved from the public square meant that other ideas that weren't uh, directly religious, that didn't have uh, that connotation, were the only ones that were allowed to compete. And the people who were running the whole thing had those. And so this whole time when everyone was being told that there was basically no, 
you know, there's no ethic running this thing. We're all neutral. There's just a system. There's a, there's a neutral arbiter. Uh, the whole time there's actually someone's values. There's someone in charge. Uh, and so, uh, we're starting to see that kind of become obvious. Uh, we're starting to see, I'm sorry, I'm getting lost. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you, you be able to do some, uh, some editing there? Um, uh, no, no worries. I mean, okay. Yeah, this is a pretty, uh, pretty rambly podcast, anyway. So I know yeah. this is just a very wide net, but I think I, I, I understand. Right. Like, um, <laughs> no, the, the truth is, and this is something I, I talk about as well. Um, there is no, um, no regime without a regime ideology. It just does not work. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's interesting that it seems to me that liberalism essentially makes the absence of ideology into an ideology, you know, there, there's no, there is no void, you know, the, the, the ideological void of horse, its own vacuum, but it fills itself with uh, this strange ethic of, of tolerance in a way. Cause I feel like, you know, liberalism is a logical system to, to overlay over Christianity. Uh, but you have to, Christianity is the, is the, the, the fundamental system that it go, it works with. Uh, but without it, it's just it's just the ethic of tolerance of these of these extremely empty, you know, virtues, so-called virtues. Um, and then you just let that run loose and call it common sense. And then <laughs> obviously you you get this um, this kind of monstrosity that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, liberalism makes your society basically eventually unable to defend itself because it's so immor- it's so interested in its ability to be objective its ability to create that neutrality that it's then unable to resist forces that don't really care about that and are more than willing to invade and impose their will on them the whole time they're basically just trying to tell those people to have better manners uh when the, when they don't care they're more than happy to destroy your civilization and and that's why i think so many people are shocked when they see you know the left come into power and then pull up the ladder of free speech behind them because they don't they thought that the free speech was really the value they thought that the neutrality was truly the value uh but it wasn't it was simply a path to power and once the progressives had that power they're more than willing to silence their enemies. And you see a few people who really had that, uh, you know, that, uh, that value as a core value in the IDW. Those are the people who stand around blinking, looking shocked that, you know, they, they've now been pushed outside the coalition. Uh, they, you know, Barry Weiss and Dave Rubin and those kind of people, you know, all thinking that uh, I thought we were really for free speech and all those things, but they weren't. And as soon as those values were no longer necessary to, you know, uh, grab power, the people who, you know, were willing to stand and and on those particular values were quickly pushed out of the coalition. Yeah. 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 That's the, uh, the limit between, between friend and enemy (laughs) and (laughs) the enemy does not have free speech. That's, that's never been the case. Well, they just didn't understand that. Like they just, you know, the, like said, they, they simply did not understood understand where their position was in the coalition. Um, and, and this happens all the time, right? Like you, you see this cycle, uh, the, the neocon cycle happen every, you know, 20 to 30 years. You have the, the, the right as it stands in America, especially is now basically completely constructed of people who were shoved out of the left, right? Like 
you you have uh, guys like Ronald Reagan or Dennis Prager say, I didn't leave the left, the left left me, which is, I guess, true. But that means all your lions of the right, especially in America, are just former leftists who got pushed out of the coalition. And so the right doesn't really have a firm ideological foundation uh, or a leadership that is interested in moving or in actually conserving or you know any of these values they really like said like we said they just want to move liberalism back a few steps they they offer no real opposition and i think that that has gone on for so long that you know you see the new crop of dave rubens or or whoever are now becoming the you know that same new group of neoconservatives inside the right wing movement and so you, you never actually have any real opposition you just have left-wing people who got pushed, you know, too far because they didn't move along with progressivism. Is there any inherent stopping point in this mechanism? Is there a point where there's going to be so many, so many leftists churned out the other end that there's not enough, uh, enough leftists in the machine? I don't think so. I, I mean, I, the, that's where all the power is, right? That's where all the rewards are. Uh, so yeah, they're burning through a lot of human capital, uh, but when the the trick is when you hold every piece of the you know uh, the reins of power, you, you kind of can re- just keep rewarding friends, and everyone's going to go there because that's where all the rewards are. Especially as their ability to control everything from employment to uh, you know whether or not you go to jail for you defending yourself. You know, being able to reward uh, all your friends and punish your enemies on literally every level of society makes it pretty hard for you to, you know, to just kind of run out of people who are willing to uh, go along with whatever you're pushing. But I think the thing that eventually just hits the wall, the things that, that stops the skid is that the system just breaks down. You know, that's uh, at some point you replace everyone who's competent and can make the system function with people who are loyal and completely dependent. Uh, you know, you see this throughout history, you know, every, every, you know, tyrant does this at some level. Uh, and if you, you know, replace enough functional people with enough sycophants, uh, eventually, you know, just the whole system topples over, which is far from ideal. It's not what anyone's looking for. But at this point, I don't see anyone bringing, I don't see any other way in which kind of this uh, machine stops. Uh, I, I don't see people arresting the move leftward or kind of turning things around uh, because, like I said, you just you don't even have a coherent opposition. Usually, you just have people who have been tossed out of the machine. Is there any way that there could be a parallel counter elite or a, a you know underground counter elite that could topple through competence, through um, sheer embrace of reality? Because we're at the point where a lot of this stuff is is just completely at odds with nature, and that just has to give eventually. So um, is is that a possibility? Yeah, I, I think there's. I, I think you can have a opposition that can do that. I don't think that. I, I you know I think they're more likely to then enter power once things kind of the the things that aren't working kind of fall away, right? Like eventually, if things just don't work if the society functions, if you can't feed people, if you can't defend people, if you can't, you know, make electricity, 
then people will support people who have the competence level to do that, to who are willing to organize society in a way that will keep them safe and and will make things work. Um, and so I think there's a, a value, of, of course, in having those people ready. Uh, but like I said, I just don't see a, a way for them to enter at the moment because one of the things that we, you know, are, excuse me, one of the things that we really have an issue with right now is just the vast control that the machine currently has, right? Like it's the American empire is not, you know, simply located in, in the 50 states. It's, you know, reaches into pretty much every advanced civilization. Almost every advanced civilization is in some way dependent on this, this system and bought in at least a, in, at some level on the values and incentives of the system. And so it's very hard for opposition to form pretty much anywhere else. Uh, I do think that you're going to see, especially you're starting to see the cracks with things like the supply line crisis and that kind of thing, where you're seeing very direct and material consequences uh, to just kind of letting these things atrophy for so long. And so you might see some flurries of people trying to kind of paste, th- you know, kind of paste over the issues, try you know, you'll see, you know, Reagan style people get elected to try to make the system last longer and eke out more life from it. But I don't see like a bunch of Peter Thiel's, you know, stepping in and completely reorienting society in the next 10 years, uh, you know, because, because people are so sick of what's happening right now, unfortunately. Um, a, a great poster um, had had this tweet, and, and he was on this, this podcast, uh, um, Extra Dead JCB. Um, he he would said that um, politics is um, uh, is just religion that, it, that people actually believe in, yeah. uh, or something like that. And yeah. I feel like you know you you've, you've made this point as well. I think before that um, the the power of of wokeness is that people really believe in it and it's you know it, it is an, an animating ethos for so many people and it's so easy to opt in and it kind of makes sense um, so I feel like you know is that the the the, the problem with with shaking it off it is you know it is a, a kind of a religion for a time I mean it, it is and that's that's certainly an issue you know it's the natural evolution of like I said pushing all of the religious systems out of the public square uh that's where i was going when my my brain fell off the train there uh but but by pushing all the religious systems out of the public square you basically ensured that some kind of materialistic version of religion was going to reign supreme because it was the only one that was allowed to compete anymore you know you can you can't teach christianity can't teach judaism you can't teach islam you can teach progressivism and people need meaning people need purpose people need some kind of moral system to glue their life together and and you know and uh, get them motivated and if that's the only game in town and the only one that's allowed to exist in public life, then yes, it's, it's going to win, right? Just inherently. There's no such thing as a secular society. We're all ruled by churches, as Nick Land said. There's, there's, no, there's no society that has ever existed without a founding myth and without a, you know, some kind of moral framework to bind the community together and move it forward. And so because progressivism is literally the only one that's allowed, uh, you know, to to enter public life, uh, it's kind of by default going to win. 
Uh, I think it's hollow. I think it's soul destroying. I think it ultimately leaves people in terrible positions uh, in a way that, you know, traditional religions don't. Um, and so it, like we said, it does burn through human capital faster. You, you look through, you look at all the issues that they are trying to push. You look at all the corner cases, all the tiny percentages of the population that they're trying to turn into martyrs to create the next civil rights uh, conflict. I mean, you know, eventually the ideology does run out of steam uh, and then they just kind of co- try to coast on pure power for a while. Uh, I think that you are seeing some of that. You know, I think you are you you are increasingly seeing members of, you know, kind of uh, the progressive regime just being will- willing to come out and say, you're going to do something because we forced you to do it. And we don't care. We don't have to pretend it's neutral. We don't have to pretend that we had to convince you about it. Like, you're going to do it because we're in charge. Uh, and that will create uh, some level of pushback. That'll, you know, that that makes their power obvious, but more brittle when you have to exercise, exercise it that way. Like it is in one way a flex. Like you have that power, you are powerful. But uh, there, there's a reason that the soft power was more successful. It's because you, you know, you don't have to shove it quite so hard in people's pa- faces, and it's easier to convince them slowly. But as that whittles down. And as I think the religiosity of progressivism becomes more and more evident, it's harder and harder to keep up this charade about, you know, the moral neutrality of the market and, and uh, you know, the, the secular state. And uh, I think it, it, more and more people are willing to just call this stuff evil. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think it's because it is now manifesting itself more spiritually. People are mil- more willing to use spiritual language to critique it. Yes, I've seen people openly talking about demons. Uh, I'm increasingly tend to talk about it uh, in those terms, just because it's you know the the, the symbolism is becoming quite um, obvious, and the the um, the willingness to sacrifice you know children at, on the altar of this ideology is also becoming very obvious, uh, and the callousness with which people are doing that is also very obvious. So I don't really think there is a better metaphor than than uh, essentially demonic possession of our culture. And people make fun of that, you know, the kind of the, the, the Reddit tier atheists are like, oh, you know, everyone's, everyone's uh, sounds like, uh, I don't know, 1980s Tipper Gore, you know, school marm, like, oh, the satanic panic. I don't know. I was one of those people. I was definitely a very, one of the, the deepest, most Reddit atheists you could ever find. Very, very cringe. Uh, and uh, I, I, I understand why this language is needed now because, you know, you, you've got a, a very good, um, a little useful, useful little meme that you apply to, to many situations. You know, they're, they're just evil and they, they want to diddle kids. And since I've become a mother, uh, my spidey senses about this have been become very, very highly attuned to what's going on and it's uh it's it's pretty disturbing what i see every day and i know i'm in my right wing echo chamber and i see you know relatively cherry picked stuff and you know the extremes but still this this stuff is ratcheting up really really fast and uh you know the the overton window on the pedophile side is uh, you know there's a, there's someone trying to pry it open quite quite violently yeah, there's a number of people doing so aggressively, and it's they, they don't feel the need to hide it anymore. And why would they? It's a logical extension of their moral reasoning. Consent is the only value. And at the end of the day, if children can consent to changing their gender, well, there's only one more step left, right? And, and, and you know, this is the thing about, you know, one of the things I don't like about 
again, the IDW types or, or those that have moved away from progressivism but still hold on very strongly to the liberalism, you know, they always think that they're scoring points by pointing out that, oh, this is just like, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the moral majority in the 1980s. You know, you sound just like those evangelicals in the 1980s. Funny thing is they were right about everything, right? Like the slippery slope is the undefeated champion. Like they, it is... Uh, it was right about everything that was going to come down the ladder. It, it, it may have been underestimating it by too much, actually. If, if it has any fault, it's that the you know the moral majority of the 80s undersold uh, what would be coming down the line. And I think that, like I said, the ability to translate a lot of those evils into very secular, cold, scientific language allowed a lot of this stuff to advance without critique, right? Uh, opposition to these things was uh, was ignorant and uh, religious and foolish. Um, you know, enlightened scientific progressive people understand that there's no inherent difference between men and women. Uh, there, there's no real difference between, uh, you know, a, a heterosexual and homosexual relationship. There's really just no ethical difference between these things. They're, they're purely scientific, they're chemical. You know, they, and by translating it into that language, they were able to shame a lot of people out of their disgust factor for things like sexualizing children. Um, but now that I think it's, like I said, I think more and more of these things are manifesting themselves uh, more, more spiritually people are people on the left are more willing to put these things back into religious language. And that's where you're seeing a lot of this re reaction because people, you know, are, are suddenly like, Whoa, what happened? Like, when did this become okay? Um, and like I said, nothing makes that quite as obvious as the way children are being treated as, as willing as they are to feed children into the machine to, to make it work. It's very clear that the next frontier is sacrificing the future of children along the, you know, uh, you know, giving nine-year-olds puberty blockers, this kind of thing. And it's hard not to, you know, to see the, like you said, the evil and in, in the sacrifice involved in that. Yes. We're, we're all just stardust, um, you know, rational consenting stardust. Um, and <laughs> I, I really like your perspective on the fact that, you know, this has been, um, this has been snuck in through, through the scientific lens, through this kind of you know, scientism, because it isn't science. Like there are scientifically verifiable differences between men and women, I'm sorry to say, and between many other groups. So sorry to say that that's, uh, that's, that's one of the things we believe here. Um, that's subversive. Um, but, but also, um, the fact that making it science means that that is, the, the, the frame we're already talking in, because I feel like with, especially with the transgender movement, which wasn't a thing. I mean, even five years ago, this is a very new, um, you know, like you said, micro category that's becoming a, a martyr. Um, the fact that we had to accept the premises, like I feel like even, even the GOP, you know, wasn't like five years behind. You couldn't be five years behind because five years ago, this decision didn't even exist. They were like two months behind, you know, things were already negotiated at the level of, oh, you know, teenage girls should probably not be able to, to use puberty blockers or get a mastectomy. And that was, you know, the, the considered GOP position, uh, on, on, on the problem. Um, while I've, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a terrible, you know, um, um, disagreeable woman, I'm like, why, why are we accepting the premise? This whole thing is absolutely insane. Men cannot transition into becoming women. 
This is this is the the level of that the discussion has to start. Not about you know who who's cutting which which parts off and who could and who who gives their consent about this stuff. And I thought that was absolutely insane. Like the second I dropped into the conversation, things were already so far along because, you know, like you said, this has been smuggled in through the language of science where, um, you know, any, anything is interchangeable. The only thing that matters is, you know, the, the homunculus that, that, that guides the, the, the molecules through, through the, the space goo or whatever, you know, Reddit metaphor you want to use. Um, so I, I feel like, is there any possibility to, to as um, considered realistic people, to step out of the framing that we've been given and, you know, take it back to reframe things, you know, like not always be in, in the um, um, Democrats or the real racist frame, just completely step out of it? Um, I know it's tricky, but <laughs> is, is there a possibility? Yeah, there is. It, and it's, it's stepping over a lot of that language. It's... One of the things, you know, Nick Land says is whenever there's a disagreement, there's a possibility to rule. And every, every you know, uh, that basically like once you engage in a dialectic on these kind of fundamental axioms, like children, you, you don't sexualize children. Like once you engage in that discussion and you're in a negotiation and then once you start that negotiation, it will move left. It will. And there, there's no way to avoid it. You have to have core values that are untouchable and undebatable, which goes exactly against liberalism, right? Everything is debatable. Everything is up for discussion. Everything can be arrived at at a rational. No, it can't. The answer is you can't sexualize children. That's it. That's the end of the that there is no discussion on this topic. And until that's a position, people are very comfortable having and they don't feel shamed by saying that they don't feel like they are intellectually lesser by not going out and needing to cite 19 sources to prove that you shouldn't sexualize children i'm trying to remember a, a couple of days ago there was a a guy who was posting you know you don't have enough there aren't enough sources you're citing to show me that pedophilia is evil you know and the, and that's where we're at. That's absolutely where we're at. It's the logical conclusion of the moral system we've put in place. And if you continue to embrace this uh, this ethic of I have to be able to bring you know the rational argument to every situation to defeat an evil idea, you're going to lose. You're guaranteed to lose. There's these people. You know, there's um, C.S. Lewis has a book. Uh, it's the second book in his space trilogy. And, and there's a, a scene where uh, he puts basically the main character on this new planet where there's a new Adam and a new Eve. And every day, and basically like God charges him with keeping the, the devil from like tempting the new Eve and, and creating the, the fall on this planet the way that they did in other planets. And every night, every, you know, like every day, he tell, you know explains to Eve why the new Eve, like why she should follow God and why that makes sense and that kind of thing. And then at night, like when he falls asleep, the devil comes and basically like explains to her that this was all stupid and you should. And he wakes back up and Eve is he, basically all his work is out undone and like Eve is just you know, back to where she started and even closer to, you know, being tempted and falling away. And this goes on for many nights, you know, every day he wakes up and makes what he feels are very rational arguments because he's a university professor and he knows how to, you know, um, you know, make very strong argumentation. And then he falls asleep at night and, you know, the devil just undoes his work almost instantaneously. And eventually it just comes to the point where it's like, 
why didn't you just beat him to death with a rock? <laughs> you know, like, like it's evil. He's, he's using the language of evil to, you know, you, you're not going to win an argument with the devil when it comes to evil. And then and again, this is not like, you know, obviously advocating for anything. What I'm saying is that if you keep playing these people's game on their terms, you're going to lose long-term like that. That's what's going to happen. You have to be willing to step over it and say like, no, this is clearly an evil thing. You cannot allow it. And if, and if you continue to debate it, it's, you're always going to lose. You're always going to be like you were saying in that negotiation before you even realize it. you already be far down that path before it even occurs to you that you, you cross the line, you know, way back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it feels to me in a way that you could look at, at a leftism as something very fundamental, almost like a, a, a law of nature. You could you could say you know it's it's essentially that satanic principle, uh, but even in physical terms, it's it's essentially just like societal entropy, uh, and it's very hard to stave off entropy in in any sort of system if it's not you know a, a, a closed system where you you exert actual effort in in saving it off and you know and in, in, in protecting your surfaces from corrosion and and you know creating constantly creating the thing the order out of the, this ancestral chaos um and and I wonder that you know in, in a way is, is that the the ultimate black pill is are we are we fighting you know <laughs> the fundamental principle of nature? Yeah, like so. This is this is Curtis Yarvin's famous, you know, Cthulhu swims slowly, but it always swims left. You know, the that uh, the left is really entropy. It's really the breakdown of civilization and its rules and its laws and its norms. Um, and it's a ongoing process that's always that's with us. And I guess in some ways you could be black pilled by that, but I don't think it is because I think it. I think it's essential. It's an essential thing to understand. You know, you you look at nature and you realize that anything worth doing is a battle against entropy. You know, maintaining your home, uh, you know, exercising, maintaining your body. You know, like maintaining your your marriage, your your relationship with your kids. You know, your relationship with friends. It's all a battle against entropy. If you leave it alone, if you don't tend it, if you don't care for it, eventually it slowly destroys itself. And this is true of societies, you know, you, you building a society that is ordered and uh, for the common good is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly rare that you put one of these great civilizations together and it doesn't stay together on its own. And eventually over time, there's always power in offering people options outside of the society's traditions. And so there's always people who are able to who are able to tell those out of power who don't like the way society's going, if you follow me, if you do what I'm I want you to do, then I can get you power. You know, we we can make the things you want allowable. We can remove that tradition. We can remove uh, that taboo, and things will be fine. Uh, you know, things will be better. Uh, that is always a easy path to power for people, and it's so it's very difficult uh, to instill those virtues, instill those traditions that guard against that, that, that push back so hard. Like I said, just saying, no, I'm sorry, you cannot sexualize children. I don't care what the context is. If you don't have something like that automatically built in and triggered as soon as someone tries to cross that line, then it will just slowly wear away. Entropy will eventually just eat away at that value because there's just always power in offering people 
you know, more of what they want in that area. And so I think it's just something to know. I think that it's kind of just part of, you know, being human. I think it's part of a heroic tradition to be able to fight against that entropy. It's always there. You never get to the finish line. You never get to spike the football. You know, you, you always have to fight against it. Um, and that's life. And if you, and the great people are those that can pick up that duty and, and, you know, and, and really make it a, a key part of their life and their value and their existence. So I, I don't think it's a black bill as long as you, you really understand, you know, fighting against that entropy is one of the things that gives life value. This is a, a hopeful message that keeps popping up uh, in, in recent discussions here. Um, and uh, it's, it's the idea that it's a blessing to be living in kind of heroic times and in times where, you know, you have the option to maybe not be the last man, you know, and where, where you, you, you get an invitation from fate to, to, to be something or to, 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 I don't know, to, to, to show up, I think. Um, and like you said, you know, yeah, things can be bleak, but that's also, uh, that's also an, an invitation to, to the right kind of person. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, again, there's this weird balance where you want the individual to, to self-improve. And that's where like the Jordan B Peterson ethos is great. Right. Cause like at the end of the day, you can't immediately change the world, but you make yourself better. You become worthy. And then hopefully, you know, you're able to make enough of a positive change where others want to follow that example, right? Once you have made yourself someone that's, that's doing that at the same time, there's also the danger of, of kind of what the mainstream conservative message is, which is just, well, everybody should just then be able to do that. Everybody should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, just, you know, it doesn't matter if male female relations are wrecked, just get married and figure it out. It doesn't matter if, you know, the economy is destroyed and it's impossible to like make a living and have a family, just figure it out, you know, just be a, just be better, just do better. You know, there is a danger in that, right? There's a balance. You, you have, you, you want the individual improve and you want to have that message kind of in the micro, but the macro, you also need to understand that like not every person will be able to, do that completely on their own. If there were, then we wouldn't call that behavior heroic, right? We wouldn't have, uh, you know, role models because just everybody could do it. So I think there is uh, some necessity and that's kind of where Peterson hits the wall is like, there's a necessity for like to have a collective understanding of like, okay, we need to be able to better things, not just for ourselves, but we need to be able to build a system that allows the average person to then obtain those same things rather than just like expecting the one heroic individual to like always, you know, everyone to just fill that role and figure it out. Yeah. I, f I feel like you, you hit the nail on the head there with, with the, I, what I think is the, the main blind spot of, of the mainstream conservatism is, you know, I mean, one, one, it's still liberalism in a different package, but it's the idea that, um, um, you know, ev everyone's outcomes will be or can be equal if, uh, you know, we have the so-called opportunity of, uh, of uh, no, uh, opportunity of um, equality. Equality of opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I mean, one, that's not a very coherent concept. If you if you start digging into that, you know, there's there's all sorts of differences from people, you know, being born in different types of families. It's, it's a very short road from equality of, of opportunity to effectively 
chasing equality of outcome um, because the situation is in the world that we live in, people are very different um, and people are different, you know, across categories, across ages, across, you know, different levels of ability, all sorts of, all sorts of um, relevant data points. Um, and that's one thing that I feel like conservatism hasn't addressed. And I feel like it's been losing a lot because of that, because to be honest, progressivism has a much better answer than conservatism to this problem, which is a consistent problem. Like you can run this iteration many, many times uh, and say, okay, you know, we, we have equality of opportunity. I mean, do you? Because you don't have equality of outcome uh, and you consistently don't have equality of outcome and very predictable patterns, you know, what gives? Um, so. Yeah, I think that is a major problem because like you said, there's only two responses to that. You know, that you give equality of opportunity and you don't get opportunity of outcome and the, or equality of outcome. And there's only two possible responses. One is, uh, you know, the left-wing version, which is, well, everyone is equal. So the only reason that you could possibly have different outcomes is that there's something in the system that's inherently broken. It's a systemically racist, sexist, whatever. And so that's what's producing that outcome, even though people start, you know, increasingly you'll see, you know, progressives are willing to admit like, sure, yeah, there's no like direct legal, you know, difference. You know, there, there, there's nothing in the law that limits people, you know, that that treats them uh, unequally, but it's all out there. It's all cultural, you know, it's all in the ether. It's it's outside of the law where we can draw the distinct lines. And this is what produces that. Or you have the more conservative version, which is like, well, of course, you're going to have different outcomes because I put in different effort and you put in different effort. And what that does is then it creates a, a very, you know, Christopher Lash points out this, uh, you know, there creates a very callous version of elites who are only uh, think they got through through merit meritocracy. So they're even worse than your, you know, blood arist aristocracies, because at least the blood aristocracy felt some level of obligation to the peasant because, you know, well, they were born to that station, right? Like you, you, you had to understand, like you had to look out for them because they couldn't do anything differently uh, as where the, you know, the, the purely meritocratic aristocracy just sees themselves as superior because they put in the effort and you could have been here too, but you just didn't, you know, you just didn't bootstrap properly. And so, you know, it's, it's fine if I live in excess and don't better the lives of others, because at the end of the day, well, they could have been here if they weren't so lazy. Uh, and both of those are pretty dangerous uh, approaches to viewing, you know, kind of the outcomes we see in our world. Uh, and, and obviously both have uh, pretty deleterious effects. And, and meritocracy at the moment finds, or, or this so-called meritocracy at the moment, finds a, an easy escape from its own um, its own feelings of, of guilt or, or you know, any residual feelings of guilt through through the, the gospel of wokeness. Because even if you are a minority that, you know, manages to get, I don't know, a position in a consulting firm or on the board of a big company, um, it's it's not like you have any obligation to your community except for maybe participating in, in some, you know, accusations or workshops or things that are related to, um, yeah, to essentially this, uh, to wokeness. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a pretty... Um, I don't know, low, low involvement, low, low touch type of, uh, of, uh, of worship. Yeah. The, the neoliberalism fix for, uh, you know, for communities that are falling apart is to pluck 
you know, representatives out of that community and put them into positions of power. So as long as you can just put people from each community in the aristocracy, it doesn't matter if the actual plight of the community continues to worsen. You can just point to the people you've placed in the ruling class and say, look, see, you're represented. They could get here. So like you said, that really fixes the, or it's just, at least it's supposed to fix the you know meritocracy problem because as again, as Lash points out, like rather than class or community be some being something that you're bound to and you stay in, and the the best and most competent people work to fix the you know the way in which those people live, you know, improve their standard of living, improve uh, you know the, the lives that they're leading. Instead, the key value is to flee your class or your community as soon as possible to get to where the ruling class is, where the aristocracy is. And then just serve as a representative of your community rather than actually someone who can bet, stay there and better it. Yes. You, you had an, an interesting um, video, I think, recently about um, almost like a perpetual adolescence, or I don't know exactly how you phrased it, um, under liberalism. I, th- I think, you know, you, you can see this in um, in, in this new um category of people, I mean, kind of these neats or, or hikamori or um, even, you know, what we call on Twitter as kind of Reddit, <laughs> Reddit style people who are in this, I don't know, strange consumption pattern. Um, and it is kind of like a perpetual adolescence. Um, it's, um, yeah, essentially kind of want to, to let you go and, and explain that. I mean, is, is this in, inherent in, in, in liberalism, the, the, the inability to grow up? Well, I think, you know, it's a, there's a, a great Cicero quote, and I'm not a huge fan of Cicero, but he does have really good quotes. And uh, it's basically about how uh, to not understand your history and not join in kind of the great chain of being, um, you know, to kind of join your ancestors in the, in the experience of you know, kind of uh, becoming an adult and contributing and, and building is is by definition to remain always a child, is, is to continue to to live in the world of a child. And I think that that is a big push today. I think a lot of people are denied the experiences that make you a man or a woman, that make you an adult. They're denied, you know, they, we we extend adolescence as far as possible, you know, you stay in college, you know, until you, you hide in college until you're, you know, 26, getting your graduate degree and you come out and, you know, you're so busy paying off the debt from that degree and finally going out and partying because you, uh, you, you're, you're out on your own, that kind of thing that, you know, you don't find, you know, a mate until, you know, your late thirties, early forties, and then you have no kids, you never own a home, you know, you, you just, you, you never become a leader in your community. You never become a, you know, you're not a member of anything. You're not a member of a church. You're not a member of organizations because that would be, you know, uh, too many ties to hold you down and keep you from enjoying the next, you know, Marvel movie or putting enough time into the next video game. And, and so you, you're just avoiding all these experiences that normally would have transitioned you out of adolescence into adulthood. Uh, and you're, you know, we always have this idea that we're supposed to be comfortable and ready for all of them, which is a very modern thing, right? Like, I'm not ready to be a, a husband or wife. I'm not ready to be a parent. Like, 
well, tough, right? Like <laughs> throughout history, you know, the, the answer to that was, well, too bad because you are like you, that responsibility is yours now. Uh, and that, you know, you got to sink or swim and those sink or swim moments is what turns you into an adult. And we're just in a, in a situation, you know, and I don't want to make this sound like the, uh, you, you again, want to avoid the uh, kids these days. They don't, you know, take any responsibility thing. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying society is specifically engineered to remove a lot of these experiences, just rent forever. You don't have to own anything. You never need to have this, you know, by offering people this option of staying a child and this path of least resistance, you're not only robbing them of their adulthood, you're basically, by keeping them a child, you're also keeping them a slave. You're always, you're always keeping them as someone who is dependent and needs you and who's more easily controlled. So this is something the system is more than willing to encourage and facilitate. Yes. The, the infamous adulting, which is um, almost like a a LARP of, you know, kind of a, a commoditized version of what an adolescent might think an adult has to do. It includes, um, of paying bills. I think that's probably most of adulting, uh, waking up on time, going to an office job somewhere and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully not getting, I don't know, not getting into too much trouble. Um, but that's, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very limited version of what an actual adult does. Um, and you can see that it's, it's, an, it's another one of those individual pursuits because the adulting happens usually in like a studio apartment um, the the people you interact with are the people who send you the bills, uh, the takeout man, uh, Amazon delivery. Um, adulting is is a quintessentially uh, lonely activity. You don't really need, you know, marriage isn't really part of adulting. People don't talk about about that. It's it's all about um, moving away from home and continuing your consumption journey somewhere else where you pay rent. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the ideal is almost to completely break any bond or any any possibility that another human being would have to depend on you, right? Like it is the goal is isolation. The goal is atomization. The highest attainable uh, status is to be as isolated and you know uh, and atomized as you can be. Like that's what makes you higher class, right? Um, and so it, it really the more people move away from any friends and family and the more that we don't see our community as something that we have a duty to, uh, the worse this gets, right? Because again, the fact that, you know, a parent died and you had to take care of your brothers and sisters, the fact that, you know, a girl got pregnant and you had to get married and become, you know, a, a father, these were difficult circumstances that often, could sometimes end in tragedy, but they're also what made people adults, right? Like these are, you know, no one wants to have to take care of the family, the family for the rest of life. They want to go off and spend all their, you know, excess money on, you know, whatever the new fashionable thing is and only focus on their career over. No one wants that, that uh, to be bound that way, but also the lack of those bonds is what's tearing us apart and not it's, it's what's making life less and less meaningful because at the end of the day, those are the things that matter. You know, those are the things that when, when you get off the ride, and I think that's why, you know, late thirties, early forties is so often the time where people regret this stuff, right? Cause they're just, they've got just enough perspective to realize that they didn't form any of those meaningful bonds that really informed the the lives of their parents or their grandparents. And 
you know, sometimes they're lucky and they still have time, but sometimes they don't. And, and that's a real tragedy. And then, you know, your only options are, you know, trying to f- going deeper down this, you know, well, or like desperately scrambling, trying to fix it in the few remaining years you have. And that's not a position that we want people to be in, but it's increasingly one that, you know, the the millennial generation and, and those who are coming after them are, are just going to perpetually find themselves in the, that late 30, early 40s uh, time frame. Absolutely. And it's like you said, you know, we're, we're essentially ruled by by media and uh, um, a, a lot of the media that people consume uh, informs them about what is high status. And, you know, taking care of your brothers and sisters of a parent dies is not high status. Uh, and, uh, you know, being being dependent or taking care of of, uh, of your mother who's sick uh, is also not high status. Uh, what is high status is, like you said, leaving leaving the home, moving to the big city, and just you know engaging in in a uh, in an interesting and and eccentric pattern of consumption that's going to uh, reveal your authentic self and advertise it to other people so that you can take your place among the the other high status and very authentic individuals that exist in in in, in that milieu. So um, it's. I feel like you know a, a lot of um, a lot of the poison kind of came in through this door of authenticity. Um, I mean, what 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 does authenticity mean to you? Yeah, I, I don't. Okay, sorry, can you frame that question again for me? I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, it's it just. It feels to me like you know there is this myth of, of authenticity. Uh, and you see it reflected like in 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 all sorts of um of movies, which is essentially kind of a, a boomer uh, idea, the idea that um once you uh, detach yourself from from you know the the earthly bonds, the, the thing that tie you down, uh, you are free to um, develop uh, uniqueness of yours. There's something unique about you, and then once once you have freedom, then then it's going to pop out, and that's going to be when you become happy, you know, once you're authentic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just uh, individuality as the highest goal, right? Like once I'm completely free of the influence of others, I'm no longer tied down to other people or other belief systems, other values. They don't define me. Then I am truly authentic. Um, and you know, the the you know, kind of the punchline at the end of that culture is, of course, the people who are completely free of all those things are entirely the puppets of the people who promoted that ideology, right? Like true authenticity is inevitably embracing progressive <laughs> worldviews, right? It's, 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 it's inevitably parroting everything that those who are actually in charge would like you to parrot. And, and so this push is, yeah, it is very interesting that the, everything that is high status turns out to be like everything that makes you miserable. Like everything that is portrayed in the media as high status and creating authenticity is severing every bond that would have given life meaning. And so the truly high status individual is one who's pretty much entirely dependent on like media and consumption to define their world and their, their thoughts and uh, opinions. And uh, so, yeah, they're, it's it's just a mechanism for creating, you know, making those things the highest value, making you dependent on that system. Because as long as you can sever, uh, my buddy Merrick of the Good Old Boy was Good Old Boys was making, a, I think, a really good point on uh, this yesterday, which which was just that was just like if you 
if you can just sever every connection to someone and yeah, tr- tr- tradition, then you can create that like ideal consumer, which is what, what's the the group like 25 to 45 year old, you know, single men, I, I think is like the, the target demo in, uh, in marketing. And that's what they want everyone to be. That's what they want women to be too, is 25 year old to, to 45 year old single men. Right. And that, because that's the group that's going to have the most income can, be, uh, consume the most because they're tied to nothing. They have no, uh, they have no responsibilities. They have no family ties. They have no faith ties. There's nothing limiting them from dedicating themselves entirely to their job and then burning all that excess income on whatever media tells them is you know uh, worth their time. Yes, and it's it's um kind of a self flattering idea, uh, authenticity, because like you said, this ends up being people just becoming a sponge to whatever, you know, outside influence wants to take them over. You know, almost like demonic possession, where we come full circle, um, and uh, you know people do think that they are the rational individual and that once they, they sever these ties with the old crusty traditions, they will be free to engage in a lot of choice and a lot of con- consensual whatever. Um, but I think people are blind to, if you know, effects like mimesis, you know, the, the mimetic desire, things that, you know, your authentic self doesn't appear out of, out of the ether. It's, it's there in, in the, things you surround yourself with and the media you surround yourself with as well. And you're, um, my, my friend, um, um, a seasonal click farm worker made a very good point today about hypnosis. You know, people think hypnosis is this uh, strange, you know, exotic thing, but hypnosis is all around us. You know, people are easily hypnotized and there's many, many things that can, you know, take possession of you, even if you don't want to use, um, you know, biblical metaphors, um, you know, um, information memes, are very powerful that way. And you have no choice in the matter. You are just there, you know, they're, they're floating around you and they, they just drift inside of you uh, very subconsciously and you build yourself through these memes. And, and like you said, there's, there's good memes and bad memes. And it seems like the worst memes are the ones that we, we get promoted through, through most of mass media. Well, see, Alex, this is why everyone accuses us of of postmodernism right here. This is we're we're engaging in our postmodernism. Uh, yeah, because because yeah, it's absolutely the case. Is you know again, like people want there to be this neutral place where they sort through all the best ideas, and once they, like you said, once they obtain that individuality and that free thinking, they are able to then take that and you know create their real self, their authentic self, that is just completely removed from all these you know old stuffy traditions and values. Uh, this whole time, not understanding that. The value they are just then feeding into a new set of values that it, they have been formed of through media, through these memes, through these ideas uh, floating out there. They did not just create this morality out of you know thin air. It is not. It is not a product of their incredibly intelligent brain uh, and in, an independent mindset. It is something that got handed to them too. And so the question is not, will you? Will you be an individual free thinker or be ruled by some kind of uh, ideological mindset or, or some kind of moral framework? The question is simply which one will rule. Uh, and that's something that's really uncomfortable to people because, again, it gets us back to the core problem with liberalism, which is it was it was supposed to remove that conflict because core core conflicts on values get pretty messy pretty quickly. And so we were just supposed to get rid of that. But it just keeps coming back. We can never seem to to truly dispense with this. And, uh, and that's a real problem for people. 
Yeah, and it's it's a it's a painful realization to to see yourself as a uh, as a, a cluster of of memes, uh, very few of, of your own creation, or you maybe you've re- recombined a few, but um, you know everyone wants to think of, of themselves as an original, and you know that's essentially the, the the quintessential boomer adolescent fantasy, you know the the idea of originality. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, unfortunately not not as common as uh, as one thinks. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show. Which is, um, do you have a subversive thinker? And I know you do because that's your job. That's what that's what you do day in and day out. You make uh, amazing videos about these people um, that you think deserves much more um, interest. People, you know, reading them, um, researching their their work. Yeah, this and this one, it's almost hard to limit. Uh, I would say probably the one. I was if I was just going to pull one that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention today, I guess it would probably be Joseph de Maestra. Um, it's not like Joseph de Maestra is super obscure for people who are familiar, but it's just not someone who enters the conversation a lot. And I just think he speaks very clearly in, in a very interesting way. He has a voice uh, from kind of a, again, a time that was, you know, just, just before the the enlightenment, just before the liberal revolution, um, and it, and it, you know, there's a number of good critics, uh, up from that time period, but I would say that he's one that I don't think gets enough credit, doesn't get enough attention and certainly speaks in a language that I think is still pretty relevant today. It's pretty, pretty accessible, I think, uh, as compared to maybe some other thinkers who touch on that topic and, and write in that period. Okay. And you've done a few videos on, on his work. Yes, yes, I've got he he does a a good job of kind of breaking down why constitutions don't actually like just make governments work. He's he's got a uh, I've got one about the American Constitution uh, from De Maestra, and I know I've I've used him heavily in at least one other. I, I should do more. I my his influence on me is uh, not in proportion to the number of videos I have done on him. I, I need to do more videos on him, but. Uh, but I think if I was going to recommend one that's a little more off the beaten path, uh, you know, I'm not going to recommend Moldbug. You know, you've had him on your show. Everybody <laughs> probably probably sees he's been on Tucker Carlson at this point. So I, I think people are, you know, everyone should read Moldbug. But I don't think that's, uh, yeah, if you want one a little more off the beaten path, I think that's a good one. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people should read Moldbug, even if just before the reading list, because I think a lot of these thinkers, you know, were inspired by by his uh, his reading. Absolutely. I mean, most of the most of the rabbit hole I've fallen down when it comes to reading has been, you know, off of the mold bug uh, reading list. It's, you know, I would have never read Burnham, Demestra, you know, Mosca, Prado, you know, all, you know, any of these people, Schmidt, if it had not been, you know, um, for Moldbug's blog. So it's a great place to start, you know, but if you want to go deeper, you know, the, the reading list is where a lot of the meat uh, definitely is. There's a lot of great stuff there. Exactly. And if you don't want to do this extensive reading, there's someone who's already done it for you. And it is Aaron McIntyre. And you should go um, watch his videos. I, I really recommend them. Um, they're very insightful. And if you want to kind of understand, you know, what, what I mean, reactionary, NRX, all of this stuff is very loaded. But this is a different type of lens. This is not this is not postmodernism. This is a critique of liberalism from the right, uh, represented by uh, a lot of interesting thinkers. Uh, and I think this is a, a very revolutionary lens that a lot of people are missing. And you do one hell of a job presenting these ideas. So I, I really want to point people towards your channel and 
subscribe, donate, do all of the necessary things, do the needful. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to that, that you came on tonight uh, or this morning in your case. Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I, I, uh, I really uh, impressed with what you've done with the show. It was, it's funny because you were, you came on my YouTube channel a long time ago, like right, I think you were right before you were going to start doing the podcast. And so just watching your podcast grow has been really cool. You think you're, you're doing great work, getting some really amazing guests. So I've, I've been glad to see that. That's awesome. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's been great. I, I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Like I've, um, and I'm, I'm happy to see that, you know, people just didn't say that I'm, <laughs> there are no women on the internet and, you know, get <laughs> fed or something. <laughs> since then it's been, it's been a bit tedious in that department, but I mean, it's just, that's just the nature of being, uh, of being in, in right-wing echo chambers and, and showing up as a, as a face Lord lady. <laughs> I mean, as someone who gets a regular, regular, you know, shipment of steel bucks to my front door, you know, it's, I understand, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's hard not to draw those criticisms, uh, but that's fine. If, you know, if you can't take the heat, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing this. So. Exactly. I mean, I, I still love uh, the, uh, the dark corners of the dissident, right? Much more than, than they can, than they can smear me. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be doing this. It's so much fun and I get to talk to brilliant people like you and yeah, I will continue doing this until, until they stop me somehow. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Cheers. Well, that, that's, uh, that concludes our, our, our chat. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 